for the Tourist Talks Trade Podcast, where we discuss timely topics in trade, national security, cybersecurity, and supply chain issues. This episode is the second part of a two-part series covering my conversation with Rob Denikowski, former Deputy Chief Counsel at the Department of Homeland Security and partner at Castaneda and Heidelman LLP. In this episode, we discuss custom summons, customs fraud investigations, and tips and recommendations for companies facing such investigations. I know you mentioned customs summons, and and yep. that's um, that's the administrative, you know, the the typical administrative means uh, in these customs cases. Um, uh, base is it like a subpoena? What what does a customs summons look like for our listeners? Yeah, definitely. It's a, it, yeah, that, that's a great way to think about it. Administrative subpoena. Um, and so basically it's just a mechanism. It's, it's statutory. I think it's like 1509, 19 USC, 1509 is, is the, is the federal statutory authority. Um, there's actually, that statute provides an examination authority, uh, and then also a summons authority. They're, they're kind of two different things. Um, but, uh, but basically the, the summons authority, it, it's a little bit, um, more narrow than the examination authority. Um, but basically for, for the listeners, it's just a way for the government to get documents administratively, um, it, you know, to, to, to send a company a uh, subpoena, a uh, summons, uh, ask for the documents and then the company, and then the company has to produce them. And these things are, these things are used all the time. I mean, this is the way that the federal government can um, get that preliminarily, preliminary information that they need uh, to go to the attorney's office to get them to accept the case, uh, to to build the foundations of a search warrant. Because you have to remember, you know, we're talking about building the criminal case. The search warrant doesn't happen until late in the game. I mean, the search warrant is oftentimes you, you've got some pretty good evidence. You need, you need probable cause, which is a significant uh, you know amount of information to uh, to get to the search warrant. So, uh, but a lot of times the the foundational stuff behind that search warrant is the is the summons, uh, which is all the more reason why. I mean, I, we would tell the agents. That's why you need to get the attorney involved because uh, we can help them ensure they're using the summons correctly. Because remember, if you don't use the summons correctly, and then that's the basis of your probable cause, you're going to have problems when you get to the suppression stage down the road. And, and I think I'm glad we're, we're we're delving into this a little bit more because I think this is a, a critical issue for for listeners that are that are dealing with this on the administrative side. I, I mentioned it before. We deal with Customs Form 28. Noted or uh, request for information. We deal with Customs Form Twenty Nine, uh, notice of action. Uh, there, there's an administrative process that's going on there, and, and at times there's still the opportunity to file a prior disclosure. Uh, you know, and then pay your duties, not worry about penalties. If you're getting a, a custom summons, it, it sounds like things are 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 more serious, or potentially going down a more serious path. And just like yes. you were saying on the government side, getting getting the government lawyer involved early on, if there's a custom summons for for a company, uh, it, it, things are already sounds like they're they're pretty serious or heading down a, a pretty serious path. So I, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Especially they can come from different people. Um, so probably the first thing you're going to want to do is determine who's it coming from. Um, you know, if it's coming from CBP, Customs and Border Protection, that's one thing. Uh, if it's coming from HSI, that's a different, that's a different, uh, different source, different, different type of pain, right? Uh, as, as, as a company. Uh, but I think, I think your point is, is spot on. It is, uh, once you hit that summons level, 
things just got things just got more serious. And since we're talking about summons, uh, we we discussed this a bit offline. Custom summons have been in the news more recently in the past few months in the way they were used. Uh, my understanding is these summons were used to to gain all sorts of financial information. Uh, can you talk a bit about what was going on there uh, for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. Back in the spring, there was a New York Times article on on custom summons. So for custom lawyers, this is a this is a this is a big deal, right? We, we we're often not on the pages of the, of the New York <laughs> Times, but uh, but uh, there there was a customs. There was an article about uh, Homeland Security using the summons, and in this situation, uh, according to the article, um, basically what was happening was that you had an HSI office in Arizona. Um, which was using the the custom summons to get financial records of transactions between people in four states and, and money going to Mexico. Um, and the concern, uh, there was some congressional concern, uh, and the concern was that they had effectively turned this into a form of uh, surveillance of, of surveillance oh. of financial transactions. Yeah. yeah, and so what what they were what they were doing was they were using a series of you know again according to the article and according to the the congressional uh, letter what they were doing was uh, using a series of summonses to uh, obtain uh, millions of, of records, um, and then these records were actually going to a uh, a non governmental organization or information clearinghouse. Uh, being compiled, and then law enforcement could access them that way. So there was lots of concerns about that. Um, I think, um, you know, don't, I don't know the details, didn't work on that. Um, but uh, in my mind, at least being a former government lawyer, uh, it's precisely why uh, you would want to have counsel involved uh, at that stage, uh, be, because, you know, there are limits. Uh, when you when you go to the summon statute, there's 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 statutory text that Congress has said that has to be followed when you issue these things, um, and you're really going to want a lawyer's uh, mind on that. So yeah, very interesting. I think it's um, you know the other thing the other thing I always think about is that you know if the, these authorities if if they're abused they'll be taken away. Back to my kind of earlier point about the the rule of law, right? Yeah. It, it's it's that law enforcement is is awesome and it has a noble mission but they have to be very very careful to use the authorities consistent with what congress has said that the way they should be used um and if not you're you know like in this case there's there's a congressman that wrote a pretty scathing letter about it um you know if not they're, they're, that's trouble right uh, you you don't want to and oftentimes the authorities are used for great good right you, you're doing lots of great work with these authorities so you what you don't want to do is poison the well and use it in a, in a kind of way that's that's incorrect, and the next thing you know, you lose this powerful authority. Um, that's that, that's devastating for the law enforcement community. Absolutely, I, I think that's that's a great point. I did want to delve into that uh, a bit because I, I found it very interesting when we were when we were talking about it um, the other day. Uh, so moving on, I, I know we we covered a bit earlier. Uh, but I, I want to return to the customs fraud uh, example and and customs fraud prosecution. So within a customs fraud prosecution, what agencies are, are typically going to be involved? Yeah, so it's us. So there's the two main ones are, are CBP, Customs and Border Protection, uh, and then HSI, Homeland Security Investigations. Um, you know, I think probably most of the listeners know this, but the CBP is... Um, you know, there's 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 two parts of CBP. I'll give, maybe I'll give a little bit of background. 
you have actually it's interesting it's kind of a kind of parallel to the to the ice thing you have two parts of cbp you have obp or the office of border patrol um they're they're the uh guys and gals in green down on the border running around uh, doing everything doing everything down there that that's part of cbp um, then you have ofo or the office of field operations different part of cbp um where the public most commonly sees that part of cbp is at the airport uh, when you're when you're flying back from London and you present your passport, that's an OFO officer. If you look at their their uniform, it'll say Office of Field Operations or OFO. Um, they actually have they actually have two two kind of missions even there at the airport. They have the immigration side, right, the passport thing. You're getting stamped there, um, but then you're also every time you fly back from abroad, you're filling out the customs declaration, right? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, right. a little like a little joke about the customs declaration. There's, there's a question on there about bringing in food. Uh, and I, I always say everybody kind of lies about the, on the customs declaration because they always check no. But it's like if you have chocolate in your bag, how is that not food? You know. <laughs> so so I, I'm the one. I'm the one guy that checks yes and then gets referred to secondary. And they're like, <laughs> you are not. You are not the one guy because you are speaking to the other guy. And okay, that's my, awesome. That's my wife, when we go when we go on trips and and we're coming back, even as recently as a few months ago. She, I was I was checking souvenirs, you know, and I was I was doing the exact yeah, yeah. amount, and no one ever ever really deals with that. But I'm like, well, I don't want to get I don't want to get stopped <laughs> for this. I, I'm a customs attorney. I'm a trade attorney. Like this yeah, is yeah, not. Yeah. I don't want this publicity. Not that it'd be publicity, but uh, you're not the one yeah. guy that, that that fills out that form very clearly and specifically. Yeah, so secondary, people might not know, secondary is like secondary level of inspection. So primary would be at the at, at when you first walk up, right? So for, um, you know, you're, you're getting your passport stamp, that kind of stuff. Secondary would be getting referred to a second level of inspection. So it's just kind of a more uh, intensive inspection. So, but it's always a very funny conversation because, you, you know, sometimes they'll send you over there and they talk and they're like, why are you here? It's like, because I have right. chocolate and the form says that it's... <laughs> right, yeah, it said food. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, so yeah, so so we were, uh, you know, OFO is field operations. And what happens is that, you know, and this type of thing, they're doing inspections at the airport. So uh, it's not just me coming in with my chocolate. It's importers bringing in uh, pallets of, of stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, oftentimes their initial role is more on the administrative side, trying to ensure that the, you know, that all the duties and tariffs and everything like that are correctly enforced. Um, but then what happens sometimes is uh, maybe it's you know kind of example I told you before. Maybe they've got somebody that they've dealt with. They've you know maybe fined them before, uh, and now they're finding more violations. You know they they start to see patterns of, of criminality, and that's when HSI gets involved. So uh, again, back to that thing about the de the detectives. You know they're that's when the special agents come in. That's when they start digging, and that's when they start uh, getting involved in a customs fraud case. Okay, so so those are the agencies. Uh, what's at stake in, in in a customs fraud case for for the parties involved? Yeah, um, so I mean, the, the big thing is you've got um, you know the, the first thing everybody thinks about is jail time, right? Um, customs fraud is more in the, in the white collar vein. So I mean, the jail the, the sentences, while significant, are are going to not going to be in sort of the area of the drug traffickers and the bank robbers and things like that. Um, 
part that's part of the reason going back to to the to the uh, whether or not the case gets accepted. That's part of the reason why it's less uh, maybe appealing to a to a federal prosecutor, right? Uh, if if you can get fifteen years on a bank robbery, that that feels like a great a great win. Uh, but if you only get eighteen months or you know something like that on a white collar sentence. Um, that's that's you know maybe feels a little bit less like a win. Um, so so that that's part of it uh, is just the jail time. But I would say for for an individual, you know, eighteen months in right. the Federal Bureau of Prisons is is eighteen months in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, right? right? right. Significant significant deterrent there. Um, you have the monetary sides. So you've got the penalties that are that are going to go on. That can be both. Uh, that can that that you know oftentimes in the form of restitution, uh, but then asset forfeiture as well. The the customs fraud statutes are going to be. Um, SUAs or specified unlawful activity for purposes of, of the uh, money laundering and then the asset forfeiture provisions. Um, and so you can you can run into situations where, you know, asset forfeiture is in play. That could be a huge, huge hammer. Um, things like, um, you, you know, your point earlier about kind of the, the uh, compliance and the monitorships and everything like that and the, the debarment. That's actually oftentimes a very important um, aspect for the agency. Um, that is, is investigating because at the end of the day, the agency's main goal more than it is to, I mean, yeah, you want to send somebody to jail, but why do you want to send somebody to jail? Well, because it, there's justice issues, but there's also deterrence issues. Um, same thing with the, with the fines, right? There's, there's sort of this, there's a justice element, there's a deterrent element there, but you also want to stop the conduct. You know, you want right. to stop bad things. You want to stop bad things from happening, unlawful things from happening. And that's where things like the monitorship and the compliance programs and everything like that get, get put. That's where those are very important to the, to the, you know, I remember when you were dealing with the executives within the higher levels of, of the agency, oftentimes that, that was their biggest concern. You know, it was, okay, what's what's the compliance program going to look like? Because we don't just want to hit this, you know, company one time. We want them to stop this conduct. We want this to, to cease and desist. Uh, and so it's it's the monitorships and it's it's that that that's where um, that's where that can often be be significant. So yeah, th- those things are in play. Uh, we talked about the suspension and debarment that can be in, in play, and that's huge. Um, I think those are the main kind of the main big hammers that, that hit a company. So just uh, a plug for a previous podcast, uh, yeah. ZTE case. Although that's uh, on the enforcement side, uh, we we recently a few episodes uh, went into uh, broke down more on the. Uh, on the ZTE case, how it started and, and what happened there. So just a small plug there. It's interesting because that is one of the uh, largest or best examples of, of a monitorship being put in place by the federal government, though that is uh, the export side, sanctions law side of things. And justice, Department of Justice was involved as well. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so the, that's what's it at stake, uh, if we could talk a bit more, a, a little more in the weeds, we don't like to get too in the weeds, but um, for for people to understand, uh, we say customs fraud prosecution, but but what are these? Uh, what are the authorities? How how does the government uh, bring these case and, and bring these cases and, sure. and conduct these investigations? Sure. Thanks. So you have basically, I guess you have to divide it out into the two main areas, which would be the civil authorities uh, and the criminal authorities. Um, and so those things are oftentimes, um, you know, something called called parallel investigations that happens, right? So oftentimes those things are, are kind of running in tandem. Uh, however, once, uh, if, if the criminal side is in play, 
it'll often be a dynamic where the civil side might sit uh, while while the criminal side plays itself out. Not not always like at a dead standstill, right. but oftentimes the government's going to want to going to want to kind of see the criminal side through um, because that's 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 the, the biggest hammer. Um, right. But at, as you start to converge towards a resolution. That's where you often see these uh, agreements with the U.S. Attorney's Office where, uh, you know, both the civil and the criminal matter will be resolved at one point in time okay. uh, collectively. So so while, while the civil side can get slowed down, it would be an error to say that it that stops completely and, you know, the criminal takes precedence. It's like, no, the two are the two are happening in tandem. Um, but, you know, it's important to be aware that there, there, there's multiple, you know, multiple authorities. Um, several of the statutes are actually in the 18 U.S.C. Uh, title. Which is, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, historically, uh, we've talked about this in the past, and you know, in other, 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 uh, other forums. But uh, historically, it's it's super fascinating that the customs laws are, you know, some of the earliest on the books. I mean, you go back to the the, the first Congress, uh, and some of, and actually, even more interesting, the the first Congress, and then some of the the first things that the first Congress did was in the area of customs. Uh, that's kind of a history thing where it's like this was how the government was funding itself back in the day. Um, but, but those, these criminal authorities were, were there, like they're on the books, like right away. Uh, and it's things like, you know, it's things like, um, false statements, you know, it, it's, there's actually, uh, specific authorities dealing with customs, false statements to customs. The government is always going to be concerned wow. with having reliable and accurate information. Um, so false statements is going to be a key part of any case with the government. Um, and so like it's 18 USC 542, uh, and, and that's often where, that, that's often where things can turn criminal, or at least that's where the the easiest way for for them to go criminal. It seems is these false statements. Even before there's yes. there's real proof, there it's easier to prove a, a false statement than maybe the underlying uh, crime that's trying to be proved by the government. That's right. That's right. You know, I think it's something that everybody can get a handle. Everybody can get their head around. Everybody can, you know, some of the the import export, the duties. It's that's all very technical, technical and complicated. And remember, with the with at the end of the day, you're talking about presenting a case to the jury, right? Uh, but but a, a, a false statement, I think, is something that anybody can get their head around. You told me this, and it wasn't true. Right. Um, and, and I think that I think that's that might be you know uh, kind of why it, it's it's kind of at the core of a lot of customs uh, fraud prosecutions, right? Um, and then you have uh, smuggling as well. Uh, 18 U.S.C. 545 is, is sort of the basic smuggling statute, which is used by by customs. Um, so you have all kinds of you know criminal authorities, but it's also important to know you have kind of parallel uh, civil authorities that get used. Um, and so, and and in there on the civil side, you've got entirely different you know processes um, that that happened. Um, you know, you've got the a 1592. Uh, process that that happens. You've got the uh, False Claims Act process. You've you've got different you know civil tracks, if you will, that that, that go down, and that that can be in play as well. Um, and so I think it's just it's just a really good example of, uh, frankly, just a, a very complicated type of law enforcement, right? Criminal authorities, civil authorities, a lot of complications, a lot of layers to it. You know. All the more reason for people to have good good customs lawyers like yourself, right? <laughs> Thank you, and and I think that's that's the that's takeaway it. is look at all of these these different ways that the the government can get you, whether on the the civil side or the criminal side, and even I, I bring it up again the the false statements, which is you know it, it's it's not a customs issue, but 
a customs issue can can create the situation where where you're on the Absolutely. hook for a false statement to the government. Um, I think that's that's really the takeaway is you just listed four or five different statutes, both criminal and civil, that that uh, people have to be aware of uh, when they're when yeah. they're in this space. And uh, we see this a lot. Uh, a lot of times customs brokers are involved in, in the importer themselves are not really taking ownership of, of what's happening. And that's really an issue because you have to know what's going on with your operations because these laws will apply to the importer. No, I think that's 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 spot on. And I think part of my part of my insight, I think, is, too, is, is that in, in the world of business, there's. Uh, it's even a whole concept, puffery, right? Remember, remember, yes, like in, yep. in corporate oh, law, yeah. we, we talk about puffery, right? There's, there's, there's a whole concept that doesn't work with the government, <laughs> like you know, like right. there is no, like it's just, it's just, it's just a different standard. It's like, it's like this brutally honest, like when you check that box, like brutal honesty is the standard, right? And that, that's what you need to be with with the government, like the puffery doesn't work, you know. No, I, I've actually said that. I don't know if I used the the term. Puffery, but we have to to caution clients about marketing information, and this is both yes. on the import and the export side. But you may be be saying something, and it is puffery if you're right to use the the legal term about what yeah. this what this product is or can do on the export side. That gets into classification. If if you say it's ruggedized, uh, you know immediately there there's a connotation that maybe this is useful for military. But if your idea of ruggedized just means, well, we use harder plastic than than this normal type, it, it's not necessarily ruggedized. So, so that's on the export side. Same thing on the import side, because so much is about the tariff classification of these products coming in. And if you're basing it on your marketing information, your marketing information isn't exactly right. Well, the, the tariff classification system is so technical that you could be in a, an entirely different a classification code, which could have different duties, which could be right, subject right. To, to 301 tariffs on China. So, so I think that's a, a great point about puffery yeah. and just brutal honesty when it comes to dealing with the government, responding to the government, filing paperwork uh, with the government. You mentioned 1592, and that's that's all about uh, entry documents and, and, and what's represented on those. So um, point right, well taken. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely, and then and then and then you know it's also worth bearing in mind there's a there's cultural aspects too, right? I mean you've got uh, when especially when you're dealing with international uh, people from you know international other countries don't necessarily have the same their governments don't necessarily have the same standards of honesty and candor that the United States government has. So the United States government's it is a brutal sort of honesty standard. So oftentimes when you're dealing with people from abroad. They may be dealing with a country that has a very different standard of how you interact with the government. It's like this is very common for us to make these sort of like you know false statements to the government. It's like oh yeah yeah not here not not in the U.S. government you know it's it, that's right. the sort of stuff that will get people sent to jail here. And we're not going to go down that tangent, but that brings up a, <laughs> a whole other area of of FCPA and the Foreign Corrupt yes. Practices Act and, and why that's in place. Also imports from China and and some of the things that that happen um, by Chinese companies in order to get to export their products from China some of the things that they say or put in documentation that we've seen um, there's a, a whole Pandora's box there maybe in another podcast in the future because that's really an interesting point about cultural norms and, and government expectations 
for foreign countries. Absolutely. I mean, that's very, very interesting conversation there. I am going to to move us on to to our next question here, but sounds great. I, I really like that point. That's that's well taken. Um, yeah, thanks. Sir. Okay, so so in your back to your personal experience, uh, do you have any horror stories, war stories, as far as best, <laughs> craziest, or or worst case that that you dealt with, and, and the extent that that you can share the story? Yeah. yeah uh... It's obviously limited in, in how much I can share, but I think my, uh, I think some of my favorite situations were was when I was dealing with uh, real-time law enforcement decision making. You know, um, I think that's where, um, you know, a great example would be uh, search warrants. So, um, you know, a lot of times uh, we would get a call that there was going to be a search warrant executed, and depending on the complexity, we would we'd be on a call for it, and we would deal with it. Um, I remember dealing with one time where uh, we had we raided a we went to a business we executed a criminal search warrant on a business um, and essentially that means we we shut down the business so we show up we execute the warrant we seize all the you know documents and you know computers and things like that um, kind of a big deal but in the middle of this the attorney for the company showed up um, you know was this inside and, uh, counsel or outside counsel if you recall it was out it was it was outside counsel okay. yeah outside okay. counsel sh- shows up. Uh, and wants to be on the scene. And uh, and so uh, the decision for, that I had to make was whether or not to let, you know, or they, they consulted, I guess they didn't make a decision, they consulted me, I advised on it, and then they made the decision, um, was whether or not to let the council on on, on the premises. Uh, and I bring this up because this was in the, recently in the news with the, the raid on uh, Mar-a-Lago, right? It was, uh, yes, it was reported yeah. that, they, that, they, that they didn't let council on the premises. Um, my decision differed in terms of the, or my advice differed. I, I said to let them on, uh, uh, escorted the whole time. Uh, and right. the reason I did that was because I think you, you want to frame everything in terms of reasonableness, because when a judge at the end of the day is looking at, if you get to the motion to suppress, you get to the stage of suppression, uh, did you operate in a reasonable way? Uh, so it's kind of interesting. It was like, I love those situations. It was great. Cause it was like, it was, you know, you were, you were forced to make. This is a, that's a, that's kind of a complicated thing, and reasonable minds are right. different. They obviously differed with with Mario Lago and their their judgment and circumstances there. Um, but how fun is an attorney, right? How how, right. how great to be kind of yeah. I mean, just really kind of drawing upon your experience and your knowledge and everything, and just making these really heady, difficult decisions in real time. So yeah, it was that was probably the best part about working for law enforcement. That's yes, it's it's a law enforcement job, and that was a. It's a, a very interesting crossroads between, you know, constitutional law, really, and yeah, and yeah. The, the law, the ongoing law enforcement action. That's right. That's right. So um, from your perspective, with, with your unique uh, experience and insight from being uh, within a Department of Homeland Security, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions and, and what would generally be your advice uh, for companies. Sure. So, sure. Um, Best advice first for for a company just generally involved um, in in the world of ex uh, imports or trade. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we've we've hit it uh, pretty hard already, but it's really this this concept of honesty. Um, I I think that you have to go back to the beginning of of the country and re- realize it from the beginning. The, the government has wanted valid information regarding what gets imported. 
Um, that's been a criminal statute since you know 1789, um, and uh, it is still the statute that is the focus when it comes to customs for federal law enforcement. Um, so I think my advice for a company would be, you know, look, you just you just got to know that you've got to know in dealing with with the government that that uh, truth is important in, in this documentation. Right, Mary. Good stuff there. You know, I, then, I, yeah, I think I think also. Oh, I was just going to also say. Uh, I think also therein lies the importance of things like compliance programs and monitoring programs and uh, internal programs to to be the checks and balances within a con- within a company, uh, because you you know human nature being what it is, you can't just rely upon everybody to do the right thing all the time, right? You've got to have internal processes and procedures in place to serve as the checks and balances uh, to make sure that that yes. Uh, honest information, you know, things like auditing functions, everything like that. As a company, you've got to have that in place. Um, I think that sort of, why do I have to have that in place? Well, well, framing it uh, through the, you know, the big picture lens of the way the government is going to look at you if they come in on you, I think it's important and helpful. Right. And, and we don't see that as much as we would like. Um, typically, there there's not as many and there. There, let me be careful here. There are absolutely... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plenty of plenty of companies, plenty of importers that have very good compliance programs. That they have a culture of compliance, and they have the their import manual. They have they have a, a great auditing function, um, and, and they do it because of that culture. But um, oftentimes, we're not seeing clients come in um, to preemptively uh, get within compliance or become uh, compliant with with customs regulations and statutes. Which leads to my next question: um, Advice for a company that think they may have violations, haven't necessarily been contacted by the government, but they they yeah. think they may have violations, either um, administrative civil violations or potentially criminal violations. What before the government contact? What's the best advice for one of those companies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to know what you have on your hands, right? Um, so how how are you going to do that? How are you going to find out what you have on your hands? Um, part of it probably depends on the scale and the scope of the problem. Uh, but this is where things like an internal investigation may be, may be a useful mechanism. Um, whether the, whether you do that internally, having somebody within your company conduct the investigation, or externally, hiring an outside um, you know a, a firm or an investigative agency to to do the external investigation. Um, you're going to want. Um, you know, the hallmarks of an investigation are sort of independence, thoroughness, and objectivity. Um, and so you're, you're going to want to make sure that whatever you do can, can touch those bases, you know, the uh, independence, who's running the investigation? Are they really independent? Like, is, is the boss controlling them? <laughs> you know, the, the, the person that might be committing customs fraud, is that the person they report to? Well, that, that's, a, that's a problem, right? Um, you, know, you look at their skills and their ability to be objective and everything like that. Um, I would counsel if I was in a, if if it's a serious situation you think you might have something serious on your hands I would counsel having a lawyer conduct the investigation. People are always like, well, why do why do I need a lawyer? Uh, you know, I, I think that um, a couple of reasons jump to mind. One is is attention to detail. I think you know this. I mean, we're the ones that check the box on the customs declaration, right, for chocolate, <laughs> yeah. right? right? Yes. It, 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 it's 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 that it's that kind of it's that kind of thing you want. Uh, it's it's uh, it is sort of the understanding of the law. Obviously, that that goes back to question. Uh, a huge thing in investigations is judgment. Uh, it's something that people don't think about, but a huge thing is judgment. There are a lot of 
steps within an investigation, which are judgment calls. You know, it, the law is often we can we can tell you what the law is, but then you get to this range of judgment, and during the investigation, you're making judgment calls. Um, uh, is somebody credible? Right. All all these different things that are that are that are that are judgment calls. Who do I investigate first? How do I go about the investigation? You know, does this get disclosed? Uh, back to the prior disclosure thing. All these things are judgment judgment calls. Right. You're going to want somebody with good good judgment. Uh, attorneys, uh, that that's our that's a that's part of our stock and trade, right? We're trusted because we're counselors, we're advisors. We can bring that to the table. Um, and then a huge one for people is also the attorney-client privilege. You get right. uh, when you have when you have an attorney, uh, the 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 communications with the attorney will be privileged, um, and that's oftentimes a huge uh, benefit for a company because they they control the privilege. They get to decide whether they want to waive the privilege, whether they want to go forward with the information or not. Uh, but they have that as well um so yeah i think that's huge you got to figure out what you have in your hands but but more importantly you got to figure think about the process for how are you going to figure out what you have on your hands uh pay attention to that that process uh the process of the investigations be very important great stuff leading to the last question uh which yeah, sure. which brings it back to to your past experience uh though often this is really worst case scenario, but I think we should address it because um, companies find themselves in this position quite often. Um, advice for a company that has now been approached by Homeland Security or uh, HSI or another another agency approached by the government, what's the advice for, for those companies? Yeah, I think the best thing I can say is that's that pick up the phone moment. I mean, you just don't rush in. Um, you, if, if you get a call from, uh, I mean, this goes for any part of the federal government, but, um, HSI is, is just one example. Um, if you get a call, I think that's where you pick up the phone and you, and you, you, you find counsel to help you out because it's just a situation where, um, there may be a temptation to, uh, rush into those conversations. Um, so to, to, to have a quick conversation and, and I think oftentimes the idea is like, get them to go away, right? Like I right, just, absolutely. Just, just talk to them. Get get them to go away, um, but remember that back to the false statements thing. Uh, you know, eighteen USC one thousand one is a federal prosecutor's best friend, and uh, a false statement to the government is a criminal offense uh, in the in certain circumstances. And you've just got to be very careful about walking into that trap, uh, where next thing you know they've got huge leverage on you because you made a false statement during that initial interview. Um, once you hire counsel. You just back to brutal honesty. You've got to be brutally honest with counsel. You've got to tell them the facts. They have to know because the only way your counsel can help you is if they know everything. And so anybody who's done any sort of criminal, you know, defense work knows that the client's going to, to, you know, usually you're not getting the full truth, you know, right away. But 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 a, a, a client, corporate clients, well served by just giving the information to the attorney. Let know that that information is going to be privileged. It's going to be protected. The attorney can't disclose it. Um, and that's how they can most effectively advise you. Excellent. Great stuff. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been valuable, unique insight um, from from you, someone who's worked many years uh, inside an agency uh, that many of our listeners uh, deal with on a regular basis, not necessarily HSI, but uh, a branch of, of DHS. Um, any final thoughts uh, for us today? No, just thank you. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed chatting with you. It was a pleasure. Same. Likewise. This episode concludes the inaugural season of the Torres Talks Trade podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed it and found it informative. Feel free to contact us to share ideas on new episodes for next season, and stay tuned for more coming soon. Thank <laughs> you.